This is the Spark Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. You may not recognize his name, but there's a very good chance you've heard some of Gordon Duarte's work. He's had a long career in the music industry, and as the principal audio director at Electronic Arts, he's helped shape the way video games sound. So how did he end up at EA, and what exactly goes into making music for a video game? Let's find out. I wanted to start by kind of looking back at your career, because you've had a very, very career, and you've been in this business forever. So I was kind of curious about your history with the industry, and how you got started to begin with, and your interest in music in general. Okay, so my interest in music started um, way, way back in high school. I played in band, and then I got into composition. That really connected with me, and that was focusing on everything from jazz, which was a passion, as well as popular music. Um, I decided to go to uh, college in Ontario, in Toronto, Humber College, which had the best jazz, commercial music, and jazz program uh, in the country at the time, that was in the 80s, um, and that really got me fully into, you know, music, performance, composition. I play multiple instruments, my main instrument is uh, trombone and keyboards, and I got into composition, but apart from that, I, you know, I'm going to date myself a bit here, <laughs> I got into uh, computers um, in high school. And uh, my brother and I had a Commodore 64, way back machine. And we were able to, um, through a competition at a local Vancouver computer store back in the day, we won this about, I would say, 30 games. And we went to get it. It was a computer on Fraser. We went and picked it up. We were the winners and had about 30 games, all in different floppy disks and baggies and stuff. And we took the shoebox of games home and just basically started plowing through them. And one of the interesting ones had um, uh, a program that was essentially uh, basic, which was a basic programming language that could disassemble code. And they popped it in there and we were able to go in and I was able to go in and actually put my own little uh, music tracks into, into games. And ironically, Electronic Arts games were one of some of the easiest ones to hack into <laughs> back in the day. So did you ever think that, you know, when you were basically hacking these games and putting your own music in and going to school to uh, learn composition and jazz, did you ever imagine that you would be where you are today at EA? No, it actually, what was interesting is that I was always into, you know, performance and production. I love computers. I always thought that was like a magic machine. As a kid growing up, I thought there's got there's gonna be a machine that will um, basically give me my fix for both uh, creative art and science, which is my other passion. So the computer was a sort of magic box. Um, but I was really heavily into you know, performance and composition. And then uh, from there came back to Vancouver. Both my parents are doctors. I did a year of pre-med out of UBC did quite well, but it wasn't connecting with me, and then, you know, joined a, <laughs> a, a sort of ska punk band at the time playing trombone and keyboards, but from there I was able to meet um, some really interesting people in the recording studios at the time, this is when Vancouver was becoming this epic center of rock um, production, 
everyone from ACDC to Alice Cooper, they built these heavyweights in town. And I started apprenticing in recording studios. Um, I was the kid who read the manuals so I could figure out how to, you know, uh, work synthesizers and early computers, music systems and audio systems. So I was very fortunate to uh, assist and work in some large studios. So music production was really where I wanted to go. Um, uh, I did some film scoring, jingle work, uh, post-production for film. Um, and really, um, what kind of got me back into the gaming world, per se, was I went to SFU, San Jose University, for those who don't know what that means, and they had to, 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 to finish my um, sort of um, undergrad. And what they had there was uh, some really amazing forward-thinking professors and students and TAs working on interactive live music systems. So what that is, is basically you play live from an instrument, the information gets converted into computer code into MIDI data, and then you write an algorithm on the computer that manipulates a synthesizer in real time. And this is the mid-80s, but this is pretty amazing, mind-blowing stuff. Um, so that was exciting as well. So I, did, I, I got my degree there, and this so happened that uh, the people, some of the, 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 the TAs and people that I, work, I studied with at, at uh, SFU went on to become the audio department at a brand new company called EA Canada in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, um, which was DSI that Don Matrick had started back in the day that eventually became EA Canada and Burnaby. Um, but before that, I had no real desire to get back into games to say I did a couple of things on the early Nintendo system, but my heart was really in film and television production and scoring. And it wasn't until, I would say, the late 90s or so that a friend of mine said, hey, there's a company in town called Radical Entertainment. You know, they're looking for somebody to come in and, and help them sort of move things to the next level. And the PlayStation 1 was just coming around the corner. And the fidelity on that machine was good enough to get me interested in sort of getting back into game audio uh, in a more serious fashion. That would be the late man. I sort of jumped back into games like sort of full on. So you've seen the, the the shift in, you know, the sort of bits and bytes of early, early gaming right to, you know, the early... <laughs> the early onset of, you know, the games as we see them now, which are kind of like movies for all intents and purposes. Absolutely. And I'm, so I'm curious, now that you're, you know, you're at EA, you, you've been working there for a number of years, you're very, very familiar with, you know, the process of creating music for games. I'm really curious about what that process looks like when, you know, you find out that there's a title coming down the pike. How do you start preparing uh, for the music for a title? Right, well, that's great. So there's a lot of different ways. I just, you're absolutely right. I, I, I was in it from the beginning when the programmer practically just coded the music directly. But um, when you're looking at each game is different. That's the first thing. Just like in film, and I, I and if anyone's interested in this, they really should look at how you break down music that works with uh, with live visual, with, with visuals. So the best thing is like television, and I've got a background in television and some composition. Um, that really did help a lot because you get a sense of how music works with 
dialogue and words with drama and words with action, etc. So that's a good base to have, but it's linear, so that's you know that's one aspect of it. So apart from the compositional skill, we can talk about that in a bit later. You have to be able to understand how games work. So the first thing is, what title are you? Um, what type of title are you working on? Is it something like a sports title? Which you know, Vancouver we do a lot of the big sports titles. In which case, music is primarily um, you know playing in sort of a jukebox carousel in the front end, and maybe a little bit in, 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 in the game coming out of the PA. What that mindset is more like a music supervisor mindset at that point, where you're trying to find what is the actual you know genre of the game and what's the feel that you want. So if you're putting a soundtrack together, you know, for for a basketball game, is it going to be you know all hip hop or is it going to be like a mixtape? If it's a hockey game, what kind of vibe, what kind of you know sound do you want? So that at that point is more of a curation sound, music, music supervisor hat that you're wearing at that point versus composition. Now, if you're looking at another type of genre, if it's like a fighting or action type of game, then you have to ask yourself as you work with the, you know, work with the team, you know, what is music going to provide there? Is it going to be a theme, which, you know, generally there's some sort of epic theme or something you can latch on to just like the movie in the beginning. And then you've got to ask yourself, what are the levels of interactivity that you're going to have in the game? And that's where it becomes more intricate and trickier from a compositional point of view. You have to understand the structure of the gameplay. So is it going to be multiple levels? Is there going to be a boss fight at the end? Is there going to be some roaming music, some exploration music, some fighting music, uh, some hero boosting up, some chilled front-end music? So really what you're doing is you're breaking down, just as you would have done, you're kind of spotting the game. But the game's not made yet. And that's one of the interesting things and differences between film and television linear and interactive is that generally in, you know, in, in, uh, in linear media, you don't really get called in to do the music until the end. So the, the director and producer, they'll have tensions and scoring, some, you know, some, some pre-recorded music from somewhere else. Usually, a music editor will come in and we can edit scenes and get a feel for how the film and, uh, or TV show is going to go. And then, right at the very end, they'll hire the composer to come in. They'll listen to what the you know what sort of the vibe, the direction that's been established, and then you'll have a few weeks at the end to, to do your score. It's rare that you bring in a composer any earlier than that, on average, um, in film and television. But in games, because you're trying to get things built out and and in development over the course of you know the development of the whole game. You tend to bring in the the music and the composer much earlier. So while the game is being built and the levels are being designed because it's interactively driven, the composer is also writing music and chunks and intents to to provide to the dev team so that they can put it in see how it's working and iterate because if you wait to the very end to then bring in you know, the idea of a composer of music it's going to be way too late so that's the one thing you have to test uh, more iteratively um, get production with the game versus film and television but that's essentially it once you can break down how you want the actual music to function and serve in the title then of course you have to 
understand a little bit about, and this is very differentiated, again, as a composer, you don't necessarily need to know how to code. A lot of people ask me, you know, I'm not a programmer, so I don't know if I can do that. But, well, on the team, on the dev team, there will be people that are programmers, engineers, or, you know, um, game audio focused uh, people that can help with that. What you have to be able to understand, though, is how your music works um, uh, interactively when you're not in control of a playback. And that's the hardest thing for a composer to understand. And I've worked with some epic composers from, you know, Hans Zimmer, um, Atticus Ross, to very, you know, some local folks in Vancouver. And generally, unless you're doing this full time as a game composer, the hardest thing to grasp is how do I write my music? in chunks so that when the game is playing in real time and the music is all coming together in real time out of your control it all has to make sense so you have to work with a game designer or in our case you have a music director and music designer on the game team side that works with the composer so that you're making sure you're getting the right amount of the right types of music to work for the different levels and and action that could happen and the interesting thing as well, I mean, it's really hard to do a film score, but imagine, you know, in a film score, it all flows together and sounds naturally. With a game, particularly like an action title, like God of War or Star Wars Battlefront or something, the actual music has to feel when you're playing the game as though it was composed specifically and easily and elegantly for the action that you're playing. <laughs> so it can't sound like it's just randomly, you know, sort of jumbly bit. But the challenge is you have to write the music in such a way that all these little bits of music that you that the composer is writing have to be able to be put together in real time of the players playing, and that has to make sense. Mm-hmm. So that's the major challenge: is how can I write all of these bits of music and all these different layers and parts so that they're organized in a way when they, when the game gets played back and nobody can predict how the player is going to play. No matter what the player does, the music has to make sense. Yeah. Wow, that's intense. I, the other thing that's sort of going through my mind is, you know, when you watch a movie or a TV show, whatever music is running there is basically it runs the length of that, you know, whatever it is you're watching. A movie might be two hours long. You may have like 90 minutes of, of composition, maybe two hours if they do a, a soundtrack for the entire film. But a game can have like hundreds of hours of gameplay so I'm, I'm curious how much music is developed when you're doing like a typical title yeah well that's it and so nothing is really typical but you know I'll give you a, I'll give you a classic example so this was back on the actual PlayStation 2 days we had a very ambitious title at EA that I worked on um, called Marvel Rise of the Imperfect. It was a, it was a Marvel game before they had like some, it was a new take on classic Marvel characters like Magneto, Spider-Man, Wolverine, etc. And then he had created eight of their own kind of superheroes. And the composer I really, really wanted to use was um, um, uh, uh, Trevor Jones out of the UK who did uh, a score to a movie I really love called uh, Dark City. Mm-hmm. And we contacted him through our music office in LA. He was totally gung-ho. He said, you know, yeah, his, his kids and his grandkids would totally be psyched to have him do music for a game because, you know, I was totally, you know, more mature at this stage. 
because I know nothing about it. So, you know, we'll have all the guidance for you. So what we did is we, I ran into my team and we broke down all of the music into like a spreadsheet to say, okay, here's your epic theme. Here's the stuff that's going to go with the comic book flashback. Here's the action bit. Here's the layer. So we need to have a low intensity layer for when, like the Hulk um, or, or the thing is just roaming around the village. And then when the fight starts, here's medium intensity. Now, when it's high intensity, this is the type of stuff, bringing the French horns and the vocals or whatever it happens to be. So we try to do it vertically and horizontally. So in any given moment, if you're looping a fight section, then, you know, are the aliens winning? Then the music has to go up in a certain intensity for the villain. If the hero is winning, then it has to be more heroic music going up. So when you consider, I kind of call it the, you know, the A side and the B side of, of any score. So you don't know if the hero or the villain is going to win. So the composer has to write two separate scores for those sort of options. Because you don't know who's going to win in, in a particular fight in the game. It's not it's not predetermined. It's based on the player's ability. So for every cue you write in, a, in, a, in an actual linear movie or TV show, imagine it's, you know that's like 2D. With being a computer game, it's 3D or sometimes 4D because you have to have uh, neutral. You have to have hero or positive winning. You have to have negative or villain winning. And then you have to have resolutions for all of those that have to then flow back to the neutral state. So it becomes this matrix of possibilities. <laughs> so we wrote them a really epic spreadsheet to say, okay, here's when you're idling. These are the tone centers, the G minor or the D minor or F or these kind of tone centers. Because from here, if you decide to go left or right with this particular character, this particular character, these are the key centers that will modulate nicely and make sense. So at one point, Trevor was just cranking, cranking music. And we were getting these epic, like hours and hours of deliverable. And I think we were halfway through the production process towards the last third. I got an email back and said, um, you know, I've got to be honest. You know, he said, I've written some pretty large scores. But right now, I think I've written like almost like two and a half to three hours of music. Wow. How much more do you need? And I said, oh, sorry, man. I thought you'd stop. <laughs> he said, please stop. He said, you can go on forever. But we have enough. Because what we do in our engine is that we take his music elements, we take the music he brings, we chop it up into, into little elements, and then we can repurpose those elements and rearrange them on the fly with our, with our music playback system. So to tell you, the thing is, you know, apart from your theme and so on, the, the music that you're writing, and this is sometimes where composers can lose their minds a little bit, the music that you're writing may not necessarily be the music that you hear in the game, meaning that we're asking them to compose these different modules that work different in functional ways. And then we're going to put them together on the fly in the game so that, you know, it's going to be around the thing in Iron Man so it's going to have a certain thematic material. But how that stuff plays back is totally up to the game engine. We're going to make sure no matter what happens, it's going to make sense because that's why we're writing around these particular keys, etc. But it's, it's not deterministic. The player is going to play however long they want to play, what they're going to play, you know, who's going to win or lose. So that music is going to be played for hours and hours and hours and hours with different possibilities. So we have to figure out how to take a finite amount of content and then be able to recompose it and rearrange it on the fly 
so that it can sound still sound fresh and surprising with limited repetition for the player. I, I, I imagine that the conversations that you have with composers that maybe have never uh, worked in video games can be a bit scary because you're you're kind of asking them to take a leap of faith and to create this material and then leave it to, you know, a program to spit it back out on the other side in a way that, like, works. And they, they kind of lose ownership of the music, right? Yes. In fact, that, I would say we're blessed for EA to have a really fantastic music office. And um, supervision team in, um, in LA, and they've got contacts with you know tons of amazing people in the industry. And it's surprising actually, some of the larger names, like Hans Zimmer, some of the bigger names in film composition, you figure would have nothing to do with this. Like what's in it for them? You know, they can pick any Hollywood score with a humongous budget to really, you know, like what is yeah, approach it, but what are the chances? Pretty much everyone we've approached has said this is something they've always wanted to do from the creative challenge. Interesting. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting and humbling in a way when you're working with these composers and they're calling you and saying, hey, you know, how's it going? Is this working? Is this good enough? You know, we had a, I won't name composers, one amazing composer who won an Academy Award for their film and stuff. And he was super anxious and nervous uh, because it was so new to him. That he was kept coming. Is it working for you guys? Do I need to rewrite this? I'm like, you know, it, it, he was completely in the dark. So I find that, you know, really, people that are, you know, really creative composition composers really do want to find creative and artistic challenges, even if they're at the peak of their career. Mm-hmm. This is something so different, so new, that it becomes a creative challenge for them. Yeah. So we try to you know, we try to keep that energy as much as we can. So instead of there will be a certain amount of frustration, but at the same time we try to anchor it in like this is new and exciting for you as a composer, um, something you've never tried, and we're here to work with you to make sure it's a success. And how do you approach, like, if you have a composer that maybe is a bit stumped, they're, they're having a hard time finding their way into a title, How what sort of notes or how do you kind of approach uh, that individual to sort of get the juices flowing? Like, what kind of method, methods or what kind of tips do you give them to sort of get mm-hmm. them started? Well, one of the best things, of course, is footage. Like, have a conversation. You can't beat people. People to people. Right? Just have a conversation around it. As I said, if you're an experienced composer, you're used to basically starting a film, sitting with a director or producer, talking about the themes, talking about the characters, things that are very familiar to how they normally work would work in, in film or television. So that's the instant approach. Everybody knows that it feels good. You get a couple of you know, just write a couple of themes. Just tell us, you know, here's the vibe. Give us an example. So we try to approach it where it's very familiar to start with. So give us a, you know, give us three or four cute examples. Here's a character breakdown. Here's some you know, early game footage. Here's some, you know, some storyboards. Things that they're used to working with. And just basically get a flow going. But the worst thing you can do, and I've, you know, I've, I've been in this position a few times, is you fire up your computer and it's like a writer just sitting at a, at a keyboard with a blank piece of paper. Say, okay, not right. You know. You have the whole process of defining what it is that you're going for before you start writing. So similarly, you know, you have a lot of conversations, just, you know, artist to artist, around, you know, the game is about, 
you know, they talk to production teams and they get a sense of it. They might play in some examples of things that have been used in other games or sometimes, you know, film, television shows, any sort of creative anchor to, to help ground the composer. Those, you know, uh, doing many projects. So that's a great, that's always a good way to start. And then we kind of break the game down into the aspects of, you know, here is, uh, you know, here's the, here's the type of music we're looking for. Here's how it's going to function. That's a critical thing. Here's how we're going to use it. So, you know, sometimes it's very simple. We're just going to use these stingers for when there's an action scene. We're going to use this as transition music to go from a cut scene, which is essentially a non-interactive segment. And then it's going to have to go from there directly into gameplay. When it's in gameplay, we're going to have to have three or four different cues. Two high positive, two low negative, and maybe a neutral cue. Then we're going to have to have some idle cues. So we can start breaking it down uh, for the composer to just start getting some choice. But it's always great to have, you know, start with a theme or start with, um, you know, sort of a, a hook or an angle into the music and then take it from there. And as far as, you know, notes and, 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 and the unsticking or unblocking things, the earlier the better. And once again, I think this is one of the benefits of game um, composition versus film and television is that there's more time to bring in the composer early. There's more time to iterate. Because the gameplay is going to change, things are going to change. Um, uh, and there's a little bit more leeway and length of time to make those changes versus, you know, something going to go on broadcast four weeks from now, no matter what happens, it has to go. So in this particular case, um, you know, any test, it just get something tense, something super basic with just synthesizers or whatever. You know, you don't have to go for a full orchestra rendering until the very end. But just get them in, get it, get it in the, get it in the box, get them playing back, do some game capture, send it back, talk about what's working, what's not working. So send notes and then send examples along with the notes to sort of guide the process. Yeah. I'm curious about the um, the sort of the, the intersection of music and the other game sounds um, and how those two things kind of come together. I'm not a very technical person, but I always find like sound design and sound editing to be so fascinating because you're marrying all these different things together. Um, yeah. How does that come together for a game? So that's, then is the whole art of <laughs> game, interactive game audio. So yeah, so while the music's going on, you uh, you have this whole other stream of dialogue recording that's happening with actors, where you know we're capturing thousands and thousands of lines depending on the game. On a, on a on a sports game, you literally there's hundreds of thousands of files that are speech files to make this character sound human. So there's dialogue, there's music, we just mentioned there's sound effects, there is, you know, hard sync sound effects, just like in film, there's foley, so the character's walking, running, touching things, fighting, whatever it is, all of the hand sounds, the feet, everything has to work in sync in real time with the animation system and the physics system. There's background ambience, which would be wind, weather, raindrops, uh, there's vehicles, cars, there's background people talking. So everything you would see in a film, in modern game audio, exists. There's, and then there's the whole things you don't see that are there, like the, the room reflection. So are you in a cave? 
if you're in a cave and we have to make it sound with the right amount of echo and reverb as though you're in a cave and that has to be in real time so on the on the game systems the consoles themselves we have reverb that we then have to instantiate and send and receive the signal and all the technical stuff you would do when you're mixing a film is exactly the same thing you do in a game i think the closest thing to a game mix is a film mix but in a film you know you can control stuff on the faders quite easily because it's, it's linear and it's there and you can it's not it's not i wouldn't say random but it's not you know it's not up to someone in real time to figure what's going on in a game we have to make it work all the considerations a good film mixer would do balancing the foley against the dialogue if there's an explosion then do you duck the music out and, or do you and then you know do you bring the fire sound up when a car goes by you mute all the other engines all the things that go into mixing like a, a tv show or a film successfully is essentially what you do with a game except uh it's all automated it's all driven by an ai system so you can't actually you can do a certain amount of leveling and volume but you don't know how the player is going to play and what's going to happen in the world so you have to make intelligent systems that say okay this is the loudest sound that can happen in this scene then if this plays all these other sounds are going to have to duck up by this percentage and then the music's going to come in only when these things happen so as a game mixer um uh, also who, who are directing the, the mix of the game you have to have the aesthetic capabilities to understand how you make a good film mix, period. And then beyond that, you then have to figure out how to come up with systems, computerized AI-based systems, that will do what a real-time mixer would do because you don't know. There's a lot of rules that you put in place in the system algorithmically that says if these things are happening in this way and this way and this way, then adjust the mix like this or just the mix like this, or have this thing here, or have this thing there. So it is a really deep and ongoing process. I'm curious, with the AI systems that, you know, obviously AI gets more and more advanced with each passing minute, never mind each passing month. Yeah. I'm curious with, with the, that technology, the advancements in that sort of technology and the way that you guys are using it to basically render all of these things in real time, do you find that you need to provide more raw material or less? Ah, well, there it is. Uh, the classic, so this is the classic situation of technology and art. That's always the cycle where, you know, initially the tech is everything. So I remember back in the day, you know, I had a small little venture where we would actually put quick time movies on CD-ROM. And just by doing that, a lot of people have never seen a quick time movie on a CD on their screen. We had work. Now, it looked really bad. It was really dodgy. But that was because the tech was ruling the content. Eventually, the tech became so mundane that it came down to the content again. So we're at a point in games now where content is king. The platforms are getting more powerful. We're on the verge of a new generation of hardware with the Sony uh, PlayStation 5 and the Xbox X. These are, um, these are supercomputers. When I think about the power that's in a PlayStation 5 that's coming back, even the current generation, it's astounding how, how powerful these, you know, these little machines are that's sitting underneath the TV or in a kid's bedroom. So the tech is getting um, more accessible. The platform, you know, whether you're using your own system or something like Unreal or Unity, a third-party uh, authoring system, 
they're getting more powerful and accessible. So now it comes down to content. And we've seen in the last three to four or five years where the players and the consumers want content more and more and faster and faster. So we are actually fighting the content game right now. Mm. Which is a content creator, it's kind of awesome. Well, it's a bit daunting because the amount of content we're putting in our game are growing exponentially every year. And the, it used to be, when I started that, you know, once you made a game, you put it on a cartridge, you put it on a CD or a DVD, and that was it. You didn't update it. You had to wait for the next version to buy anything new. That's how it was. Now, games never end. So you ship a game. You have this massive game that comes down. And then, because it's all connected, these boxes are all internet connected, you constantly update the game. And this can go on for years. So you constantly adding new content, new content, new content to an existing title. Because you can ship new content and drive new content via the internet to the end user, the end player, games can last quite a long time. So while you're working on the next big thing, you're also supporting the current big thing with live updates or, or, or content drops throughout the cycle. So that's kind of where we are right now. How can we generate, how can we you know, create better content, smarter content? Um, you know, we're looking at tools, and this is super interesting, because it's not just games, it's also anybody doing anything from animation to film to what, you know, whatever. You know, uh, we've got close ties with Adobe, and Adobe's got an amazing uh, research team uh, inside of the Santa Fe headquarters. And you know, if you look at what Photoshop or the Adobe you know, Creative Suite looks like in the future, in the near future, and a lot of their tools will be AI assisted, so that you know, I want to make this look like Picasso was on a date with Renoir. <laughs> what would they do together with this kind of content? And, you know, you, you have these AI-driven systems now to help you make content where, you know, I call it just giving the artist a bigger lever so that one person can lift a lot more um, than they previously could. How do you think something like that and the use of AI in general is going to affect how music is composed for games? Do you think we're ever going to reach a point where we're going to be able to, you know, press a couple of keys on a keyboard and the computer is going to generate the soundtrack that you need for a game? Uh, that's an interesting one. I, I, that's one of my other passions is AI systems. kind of like when I started in, in university. So, yeah, I've been looking at in the text-to-speech stuff, which has been going by leaps and bounds, where we can synthesize human-sounding speech um, with an AI system just by typing in text with some markup to say, make it more aggressive, make it sad, happy, male, female, whatever. And then the system will generate uh, a speech file in something very close to how we're recording the beat. So that's getting, that's, that's coming along quite nicely. And just recently, um, through um, a, a system uh, called OpenAI, which is an AI group that's out there, there's, um, uh, there's a project called Jukebox. And Jukebox, um, where basically what they've done is they've analyzed, and they use machine learning, and they've analyzed hundreds of thousands of hours of 
Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, recordings, etc. And I just heard um, an output they did about a month or so ago where they basically said, okay, we're generating a Frank Sinatra. They generate lyrics and they generate uh, new songs that sound like Frank Sinatra, singing new lyrics, and it generates the backing track as well. Now, the fidelity is pretty low, but the promise is there, or the, the thing is there. So this is always um, a challenge for um, composers or artists in general. Like, are we going to be replaced by robots? And I'm like, no, that won't happen because it's a tool. Now, what will happen is that you know, perhaps not so often composers or writers and stuff can get replaced. Um, you know, right now, I can do tracks in my home studio and, and people can do stuff in their bedroom that would have taken an entire recording studio with a bunch of session players and pull off a really amazing thing. We listen to hit radio, a lot of that stuff. You know, Billy Eilish, most of her stuff is done in the bedroom. That's amazing. But there still is creative people involved. So with these AI-based tools, you know, the scary thing is, yeah, will we be replaced? Although, you know, will the artist be replaced, the composer, the actor, et cetera? So not really. Maybe bad actors and composers, right? But not really. Overall, it's a tool. It's just now the tool is a smarter tool. And I always tell people, I always use a quote saying, you know, there's, Here's an article that says there's this machine that's going to destroy music. It's mechanical, it's unexpressive, it's loud, um, it doesn't allow any participation with the artist. Like, it's not like a violin where you can breathe and grow and swallow the sound. And it's absolutely going to destroy music as we know it. And then I said, you know, what is that instrument? It was the piano. <laughs> you, go, you go back to the, you know, back in the day, there were all these people that thought the piano being this mechanical and dust industrial instrument that had no expression is going to absolutely destroy music and make it robotic sounding. Well, that didn't prove to be the case. There's new generations and generations of composers that will take the tool and do something creative with it. Same when computers and MIDI systems came in, and I know this is a death now for, 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 for expressive music, not the case. For a while, it's awkward, and then there's a generation that grows up with it and then uses it as a tool. So similarly, at first, it's going to be a bit awkward uh, with these AI systems that are going to be generating things and it's going to be a little scary enough, but there's going to be, once again, you know, a generation of composers or creative artists that this is their tool and they'll be able to come up with new things that we haven't even thought about uh, using this new tool. Yeah. I was uh, I was reading a little bit, like sort of staying with the tech side. I was reading a little bit about audio standards for video games, which is something that I'd never even considered. You know, you think about the music and stuff coming out of your TV, or I mean, a lot of people don't even have speakers. So I was really curious to read about how, um, like, video standard, like audio standards, are such a big deal. I was wondering how important is that when you're creating content for uh, for games. Mm-hmm. Well, standards, standards are important. Now, it's um, a bit of a wild west for games, but in the last round, last generation, I'd say over the last eight years, um, sort of the, I sat on a panel with, um, you know, sort of the senior folks from Sony, um, Microsoft, EA, Activision, um, and 
forget one other company. Uh, anyway, the idea was, you know, we're making the top sort of games in the industry uh, on a regular basis. Let's come up with some audio loudness standards. So Sony and Microsoft were all over that in their, the current generation of consoles and PCs, saying that, okay, here's the loudness standards. Here it is, and we're trying to align it with film. But really, our, our playback system is televisions, home, home, it's home, uh, home theaters, TVs at home. So we're trying to align it to the TV spec as far as loudness goes. Because there was a, 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 a little bit of a loudness war that was going on in games where, you know, people said, okay, if my positive is louder than yours, then it's going to sound more impressive and the players are going to think it sounds better. Well, that just leads to distortion and actually a bad experience overall. So we all agreed around like a certain spec standard that we're going to follow um, for the mixes of our games. Within a range, you know, you, you can go plus or minus a certain percentage, but here's our center average volume loudness for the, for the game, and here's the headroom leeway, equal minus or plus within this general area. It's a gentleman's agreement, so to speak. So, you know, if we all agree to this and make it like a standard, then uh, you can pretty much guarantee from a consumer, from a player experience, it's going to be better. We get all of the line, these are, these are ideal specs. As a play, player, if a player plays a game from EA or from Microsoft, it's an Activision. The loudness coming up, they're not going to have to reach for the volume for one and turn it up or turn it down. It's going to be, as you would expect, a TV show or a film to adhere to a certain broadcast spec. Similarly, this would be the equivalent of audio broadcast or playback specs for games. So at least that's generally been kind of standardized. On the production side of things, within EA, we have our own standards as well so that we make sure that, you know, if you're making background content or, you know, explosion or dialogue, that there's certain measurements for loudness and so on. It just makes it easier to mix the game in the end if you know that you know, for a certain type of content coming in at a, at a certain volume level and so on, so that you don't have to be crazy, crazy adjusting uh, late in the project. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about hundreds of thousands to a million of little tiny bits of audio all sitting around waiting to get triggered and played back on the fly. It's crazy. Sure. <laughs> you know, some of the things that, you know, you might have you know, one character may have a thousand, two thousand different Foley sounds attached to the character depending on what surface are they walking on. Are they, do they have boots on? Do they have armor on? Uh, are they being chased? Are they running? Are they panting? Every single one of those actions has to have associated sounds. So just for one character to realistically feel like they're running and walking through the world, you might have to have, you know, a hundred sets of left foot, right foot on different mud, mud, metal, rain surfaces, uh, sidewalk. It, it's crazy. So having certain standards around, you know, predictability of how the stuff's going to play back, it really does help in at least helping to, to establish the mix in the end. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, to sort of wrap things up, I had two questions. The first is, you know, your background is so unique and so it, it seems like it was perfectly catered to the role that you have now, you know, with the, your various different backgrounds and areas of study. And I'm curious for someone that is interested in a role like the role that you play, what would you recommend they be doing or studying or looking at or maybe they're not studying at all what what would you say to a young upstart that would want your job basically right well you know we do a lot of outreach um yeah, to the local community we've hired many 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 graduates of the vancouver film school the arts institute and, and some of the other schools around vancouver specifically and we have outreach in other areas but specifically for vancouver that's been actually our major talent pipeline and we've been fortunate to work closely with um, some of the instructors to help, you know, structure their course around, um, you know, some of the things that we do. So what I, this question always comes up, whether you're established and, you know, you might have won a, even an, I had a, you know, a couple of guys that won Emmys and so on. Like, you want to get out of television? How can we do this? So um, the first thing is, I say, you've got to be able to understand linear audio post-production end-to-end. That's a given. So you have to be able to creatively and expressively put sound to picture as one that's of practice with video. So, you know, when I was first started doing that, I had to go get videotapes and dub them and put time codes on one side. It was, it was so hard just to get them to practice with. You can go to YouTube, you can download videos. There's so much stuff out there that just practice putting creative sound to picture just straight linear post-production, TV film production. So that's a whole skill set and sensibility on how, and there's lots of areas of study. You can go to a formal school, um, film school or an audio school, or you can, if you want to do it on your own, there's a ton of resources online, a lot of great books, a lot of workshops you can kind of sign up for. Master classes are amazing things. Hans, I see Hans Zimmer and a few other people have got these master classes out there. So there's lots of great resources if you want to do it on your own. The step one, practice putting sound to picture in different kinds of ways to evoke certain emotions and feels and so on. That's the first thing. Second thing is understand how sound plays that in a multi-channel surround sound environment. So. <clears throat> None of the games we really do, like, you know, AAA games. For mobile, it's a little bit, but even mobile is in multi-channel surround using headphones. To understand how sound playback in an acoustic space. So, how do you know, what's the effect of a room reader? What happens if the sound is panning around me? So being able to take what you're doing uh, in soundscape and spread it out 360 degrees around the listener and understand how that works. So that's the, the second thing. The third thing is understanding how interactivity works. And this is where it differentiates between you know, the linear post-production and what we do, is that take all of that stuff that you need to do linear post, now start throwing in software development on top of that, which means how does interactivity work? So, you know, what's a game system? What's an AI system? What, you know, what, what are different types of rules um, and conditions? You don't have to be a programmer, but it really does help to understand how things work. How do I take a bunch of buckets of sound, of samples that sit in there, and how do I make them play back 
to the action of the player and what's happening on screen. And fortunately, right now, there's multiple great free engines you can grab. One of the best ones is Audio Kinetic Wise, W-W-I-S-E. You can download that. It's super robust. A lot of, you know, a lot of professional game companies use that as their audio engine. It's not crippled if you just want to practice. There's lots of tutorials, a great community. That will give you a huge insight into how things work when you're actually putting sound in an audio engine and playing it back interactively. It comes with a little test game as well, if you want to see how it goes. And then, so then from there, like everything else, you've got to make a demo reel. Also, the last thing I would say, to anyone who wants to go there, is speech and dialogue. And this is one of the things I would put out there. It's kind of like the final frontier in a way. You know, we've gotten really good at you know, music. We've gotten really good at sound effects and sound design and games. Dialogue is still tricky. It still sounds a little cartoony in the playback. Uh, for me, a lot of the time. I'm, I'm hypercritical to it. So can you, you know, do you have an interest or, or can you demonstrate that you understand how to make dialogue, how, how speech works in a game. Now, that's not for everybody because a, a good dialogue editor in film is hard to find. You can find 10 sound designers or sound effect editors for every single one good dialogue editor. So it's not even in, in film and TV, it's not like something that's easy to find. But in games particularly, if you get a real knack for interactive dialogue, that's a leg up on everybody else. Hmm. That's some really great information and, and ideas. The, the, and I guess the second to, to the other side of that is from a composer's perspective, if you're a composer that's interested in getting into gaming, what do you recommend is the best, uh, the best way to go around it? Um, yeah, well, it's tricky. Um, I mean, there's a lot of composers out there. I, think, I don't know of any of the large companies that still have in-house composers per se. Um, but once again, there's a lot of places to practice. So, you know, to get your comfort, I would say the same thing as I talked about, just general sound. Get a composer reel together, write for everything. So, you know, grab videos of games, grab videos of films, television shows, everything from comedy to fantasy to high drama to action, whatever it is, just practice, practice, practice. You know, write little chunks, as you would in your, in your, in your workstation. And get that and build up a good, robust set of skills in running and writing different styles. Then another thing that people don't think about when they're um, you know pursuing like a film or television composition career is how do you take your music and make it loopable in small chunks? Sounds a little ridiculous when I tell people. But great. Now, can you now? Inside of you can still use just your, your basic visual audio workstation. Can you write something in a way where you think in two dimensions now, instead of just you know front to back? Think about front to back as well as vertical. So can you write something from let's say sixteen bars, and then give me a low intensity version, then give me a medium intensity version, and a medium high and a high intensity version within that sixteen bars? That at any given moment when I go, let's say. You know, I'm wandering in the woods, I'm a little out, I'm kind of hanging out, and I'm talking about my low-intensity idol music. And then, all of a sudden, you know, a dragon bursts through the tree, 
to a high-intensity version of that music. So that has to make sense. So how fast can I transition from one field to the next? And so then work with that. And then can I now have just that 16 bar, just that work in that 16 bar section? And that can be, let's call it forest fight. Now think about that. And then now think about 10 times or 50 times that. Different little chunks and that's a different little scenarios. And now think about how to connect one scenario to the next to a central tonal hub. So you can actually create almost like a, um, like a thought bubble or just like a flow chart of how these things are. And that you have A section, B section, so on. And how do they transition back and forth? And you can use that as a map. And I've, I've drawn this out for, for classes before. So here's a map of a composition framework. And this is kind of like how I've explained it to other composers that have never um, done this before. And I said, so now, here's the, here's the architecture of how the new kind of work in this game. Now, for each one of these little bubbles, each one of these little connected threads, you've got to write something that can go from, you know, this bubble where you're having this fight, and then depending on the output, dragon wins, uh, hero wins, or nobody wins, people get tired. That's three different outputs, and they all have to transition to the next thing. So then you have to write three different endings for three different potential things. How are you going to write that? And that all has to be completely smooth. And that was Gordon Duerty, the Principal Audio Director at Electronic Arts, pulling back the curtain on the process and work that goes into bringing together the music and sounds for your favorite video games. The Spark Podcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org. We'll be back with another episode of the podcast in two weeks' time.